Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Or do we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've been discussing these three responses to the greatness of Christ. The eternal Son of God made flesh who is our great high priest who gave his own body as a sacrifice for us, as a satisfaction of the justice, the righteousness of God on our behalf, who has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty what the book of Hebrews calls the majesty on high. And seated there, he, according to Hebrews, ever lives to make intercession for us. Consequently, he has opened the way into the very holiness of God, the very presence of God the Father Almighty, the righteous, holy one, And yet, he, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we have access to what Hebrews calls the throne of grace. The throne of God can't always be viewed as a throne of grace. But for those who are in Christ, that is exactly what it is. And we are invited to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. 
Well, here's something you might observe. Every time is a time of need. There's not a time when you don't need to be before the throne of grace. And so when we come to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, we read, therefore, since we have this great privilege of access to God, and since we have this high priest interceding for us by the blood of his own sacrifice, draw near. And as we've noticed several times, that's the only sensible response to these realities, is to draw near to God by faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to hold fast the confession of our hope, to cling to the hope we have in Christ and the promise of his coming to complete our salvation in resurrection. Well, that's a thing to cling to. That's a true hope. That's a hope that won't be disappointed like all our other hopes. We had a, in the United States this week, we had a big decision by the highest court. A big decision. And you would observe if you were there, maybe you don't even have to be there, you can observe that in that decision, hopes were realized, fulfilled, and at the same time, hopes were crushed. Just depends on who you talk to. The whole society is really divided over that issue. And so some of us have been hoping against hope for this very decision. And that hope was, in this case, realized so far. And at the same time, the hopes of those who disagree were dashed. Here's the thing about putting your hope in a thing like the Supreme Court of the United States. Sooner or later, it will get dashed. Or if you put your hope in the legislature or in the politics or in the level of your education or in the success of your business ventures or in it, go on and on and on if your hope is outside of a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of resurrection in him, your hope will be disappointed. But not this one. So let's cling to that hope. Let us not get too caught up in our other hopes. And let us consider one another. You know, if I draw near to the Lord God Almighty and experience God, my, a relationship with God Almighty as my loving Father, because all of the judgment that should be on me has been borne by His Son, and there isn't any left for me, if I experience God as a loving Father, it really changes how I look at you. Or should. 
Because now in the love of God, I am free in the most meaningful sense of that word. I am free. So I can love you whether you love me back or not. I can do what's good for you and let him take care of me. Oh, that's what Jesus himself did. And so as I have been loved by him, I can be loving. Let us think carefully then about each other, how to stir up this love. I need to know you well enough to think, to know what might motivate you to express the love that you've experienced from him. And of course, that love is going to be expressed in good deeds. Because the love of God, agape, the love of Christ is not a mere affection. It certainly includes an affection, but it's a love that acts. Jesus did not love us from heaven. He showed up here. And this sort of love shows up in person. And this sort of love bears the cost of the benefit for others. So it only makes sense that we respond in this way. And I, as I mentioned last time, really, if you just look at those three things, it's just kind of a description of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian draws near to God in Christ. That's the fundamental. That's trust God in Christ and be saved. Jesus said, he who believes in the one who sent me will be saved. If we come to God in Christ, he says, well, no one does that unless the Father draws him. And whoever comes to me, I never turn down. Jesus doesn't turn down anyone. If you come to him to come to God, he receives you gladly on the basis of what he has done and on the basis of his own righteous life, not yours. So drawing near, it's just being a Christian. Holding fast to the confession of our hope. Looking for the coming of Christ is simply another way in which we trust Christ. We know every day we are alive on this earth as a Christian, we are in a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, between our independent, do-it-my-own-way self and my spiritually activated self that looks to Christ and looks to God in Christ. And I know every day I'm alive on this earth in the present, there's this war going on, as Paul says, the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so that you can't do what you want to do because you want to do both bad and good. So we are in this already and not yet phase of life. Here's what will resolve that problem. He will come again. And I will be raised so that everything about me is in tune to the Spirit of God, and I no longer even have any 
desire for the things of the flesh. Sin will lose its appeal to me in that day. It will be utterly defeated in the resurrection of the saints. And that day even includes the resurrection of the planet, of the material creation. And the scripture says that the, all of creation is groaning for that day. We don't know how good it is. It is the best thing that can happen. So John says at the closing of the Bible in the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now some of us, we think, well, I've got some more things I want to do before he gets back. But when he gets back, you will change your mind. You will go, oh, thank heaven he interrupted my plan. There is nothing better that can possibly happen than that Jesus might show up in person again. So we cling to that hope. That's just being a Christian. And letting this, uh, this great grace of God flow in and through me toward other people, that's just being a Christian. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. So... Now, we come to this really difficult part of the book of Hebrews. What if you don't? That's the question. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully, if we go on sinning willfully, the, it's very important for us to see the two little words for if, because what you really need to notice, especially if you are a believer in Jesus, what you really need to notice is that this is uh, in the context of the, the three things we've just been talking about, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. If we go on sinning, what is the sin he has in mind here? Well, he says, for if. This section is providing another, another reason or a motivation for these exhortations. Draw near, hold fast. Consider one another. So when he says, go on sinning, he means we do not draw near. We do not hold fast. We do not consider one another. Those are the three things, if you're writing this down in the bulletin. We don't draw near. We don't hold fast. We don't consider one another. We forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We do not encourage one another, and more and more as we see the day of Christ getting closer and closer. There's a particular sin in mind. He isn't saying, look, if you're a Christian and you sin on purpose from time to time, well, forget you. That is not the point of this text, and it can sound like it is. In fact, if you just read this text without reading the book of Hebrews, you might very well think 
that someone who is a born-again person claimed by God in Christ could be let go. That is not the point of this text. The point of this text is here in the body, we have a group of people, some of whom maybe aren't actually really getting it. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is, of course, there's a there's people talking about, you know, going back to synagogue because persecution's coming, and they're thinking of abandoning Christ and the church. What? And so the whole book of Hebrews is like, you can't abandon Christ. And here again, like he did in chapter 6, he's making this point. Look, if you abandon Christ, you've got nothing. And no person who is in Christ can abandon Christ because Christ cannot abandon them. Paul writes in the book of Timothy, I think it's First Timothy, he says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So there's no losing a salvation that has actually occurred. But if we go on sinning, if someone among us goes on sinning, well, then there's this important phrase, willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What is this? What is this talking about? It's This is a person who makes a conscious, informed decision to turn away from Christ and the church. This is someone who's been a participant in the church, deciding this is all nonsense, I'm quitting. Now, no real participant in the church can do that, but there's real and unreal participants in the church. The willful sin in mind here is the sin of rejecting reconciliation to God in Christ. He spells it out. He says, he, he talks about this person that we're imagining as one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. So this is someone who's been presented with the opportunity to draw near to God in Christ, presented with the opportunity to hold fast to the hope of our confession, the confession of our hope. Someone who has been presented with the opportunity to join for real the fellowship of the body of Christ and says no in the end. Now that is hard for anyone who has participated in those things genuinely to even imagine doing. So the response of the writer of Hebrews, this person has trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've rejected Christ. This person has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, that's very Jewish terminology, regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. In other words, the blood of Christ, this person now has rejected in favor of, 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 wait, 
what sacrifice then? And this person has insulted the spirit of grace. So we might even think this is a person who has been acted on by the Spirit of God, convicted of their sin and their need of salvation, and rejected it. This is not a simple uh, go on sinning like every Christian goes on sinning. This is... In, this is choosing sin over Christ. The very definition of sin we might need to think about. There's lots of given definitions of sin. One might be to break God's righteous law in thought, attitude, or deed. That's a heavy one. So any act in thought, attitude, or deed against God is sin. Okay? That's good. That's true. I think we might just use the two words against God. Against God, anything against God is sin. Anything against God is sin. Here's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned the first time. They went against God. And they put all of us in the position of against God. Apart from God. Alienated from God. And the consequence of that is the opposite of what we see in these three exhortations, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. What happens is, instead of draw near, we draw away. We go away. We go against him, apart from him. And the consequence of that is, well, now what are we going to hope in? Well, let's hope in uh, our own efforts one form or another. Let's hope in this false God we make. Let's hope in the prosperity of our society or the politics or the blah, blah, blah. And so when we go against God, we, our hope is displaced into something that will ultimately fail. And when we go against God, we also go against one another. Adam and Eve experienced this on the very first event of going against God. All of a sudden, Adam saying to God as an excuse, this woman you gave me, she made me. All of a sudden, they're realizing they're naked and they're hiding, hiding, hiding from God and from each other. They no longer trust each other. Their intimacy is broken. They are not just alienated from him, but being alienated from him results in a creeping alienation that sooner or later affects every relationship. When we talk about sin, we're talking about that, 
not just the little acts in which that gets activated by us. When I steal from somebody, I'm acting in my alienation from that person. I'm acting in my own interest at the expense of someone else. This is the opposite of love. When I lie, same story. And all sin, if you read the Ten Commandments, some of them are against him, acting in our alienation from him, and some of them are against somebody else, acting in our alienation from each other. That's sin. And what Christ presents us with in Hebrews, what God presents us with in Christ, is the opportunity to reverse our alienation in him to join, be joined to him and so to be joined to God in him by the actual indwelling of his spirit so that we are again alive and not dead. And having experienced that, now free to experience it in relation to each other and even to the creation around us. So when we think about sin in this category, we're talking about someone willfully sinning. What we're talking about is someone deciding to stay with that instead of going with Christ into the very presence of God and experiencing his love and sharing his love. That's what we're talking about here. So suppose someone were to do that. Well, there's a consequence, of course. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. There no longer remains. There's only the one. So if you reject that one, you don't have one. If you reject the sacrifice of Christ for sin, you don't have one, because that's the only one. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you might say, well, what about those old sacrifices? Well, of course, the book of Hebrews has made this case that the sacrifice of Jesus has rendered all of those unnecessary. And, in fact, all of those were only shadows of his, only ways of leading us to his and so once his is made, those are of no value. And even in the time in which they were practiced, they never actually solved the problem of sin. They only sort of covered it for the time being in anticipation of the sacrifice that would actually work. We've read all about that in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? So there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. If you turn away from the soul-cleansing blood of Christ, that's the thing the blood of the animals couldn't do. Soul-cleansing. So if you turn away from the soul-cleansing blood of Christ, what sacrifice is there? There isn't one. The sacrifices of the old system have ended and they were only a temporary covering in the first place. 
And he says another thing about this terrifying expectation of judgment. He says, you know, under the law, you could suffer the penalty of death if you broke the law. Now let's remember the law in, in relation to Christ. The law is like a foreshadowing of greater things. The temple in the Old Testament is just the model of the real temple in heaven where Christ presents his sacrifice, where we now have access to freely go before the throne of grace. Well, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think the punishment will be for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. So the new covenant is greater than the law. The punishment for rejecting it is greater than the punishment of the law. The worst we could do to you under the law is kill you in this life. The penalty of rejecting the sacrifice of the new covenant is eternal punishment. The eternal punishment of hell. It is worse to spurn grace, to reject grace, to turn away from grace than it is to turn away from the law. It is worse to reject the son than to reject the servant. You know, in that parable, Jesus told those farmers they rejected the servants. They kept on rejecting the servants. I think this parable is supposed to be talking about how the leadership of Israel dealt with the prophets. Well, not nicely. So God sent someone. God sent someone. God sent someone. Finally, he says, I'll send my son. To reject the son is a greater offense than to reject the servant. To turn against the law of Moses is not as big a deal as to turn against the grace of God in Christ. So he says, for someone who decides against Christ, departure is a disaster. To depart is the most ultimately foolish thing anyone could do. And he closes with this famous statement. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, not for me it isn't. Because I am in the hand of God, the loving hand of God in Christ. So I'm not afraid to be in the hand of God. In fact, for me to be in the hand of God is to be in the hand of God's care provision and love 
and oversight and supervision. But if you are one of those who says no to drawing near to God in Christ, then it is a terrifying thing. See, God is the one Jesus saved you from. Because in our position of sin, of alienation from God, there's only one consequence to being alienated from God, and that is some sort of eternal death. In fact, being alienated from God, you're dead already. It's just going to take a while to play out entirely. You don't want to be caught anywhere near God if you're not in Christ. This is what happened to Isaiah, right? He comes in this vision he's having. He comes before the throne of God. He says, get me out of here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I can't be here in the presence of God. Wow, what a different situation we are in now in Christ. Where not only can we be there, we don't have to sneak in there. We can go in and say, here I am. Hey, Father, pay attention to me for a second. And he will. And it won't be the wrong kind of attention. We either run to God in Christ or run away with God, from God without him. Those are your options. You can come to him or you better get a, Well, where are you going to go? Run away from God. Here's the meaning of that expression, away from God. We have a word for that, away from God. The word is hell. That's the word. If you ask me what is hell, what do we mean by hell? What we mean is a permanent state, an eternal state of away from God. Now, that might not sound so bad. But if you ask me, that's like being in the moment of death all the time. Because that is, it's not just like it, it is that. To be away from God is to be divorced from life. It is to be dead. And according to Scripture, that's a permanent condition. And so if I decide against Christ, I decide for that. But the invitation is, let us draw near. Christ is the best. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us love one another. Let us consider one another to stir up love and good deeds. That is our opportunity. We have, the, we have the privilege of escaping. That's why we call it salvation. Salvation is the escape of a certain catastrophe. The disaster of departing from Christ. Now, it's my belief that 
just about everyone here this morning is in Christ and safe in Christ. You cannot depart if he's got a hold of you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't made up your mind, this text is for you. If you haven't made up your mind, oh my goodness, do not miss the great opportunity of finding yourself in the presence of God in Christ with the very Spirit of God dwelling in your soul. You see what's happening in the playing out of the history of redemption that we read about in the Bible. What's happening is God Almighty, the three persons of the God Almighty are operating together to draw his people into the fellowship that they enjoy and have enjoyed for all eternity. And so we come into living fellowship with the three persons of God Almighty, the Spirit actually abiding in our very souls, and as a consequence, enjoy open, real fellowship with each other. And that is the point. And that is your opportunity, if you haven't taken it already, right now, to say, yes, I will have that. Thank you. It's really as simple as that. I could ask you to raise your hand. Raising your hand isn't it. I could ask you to come down here and talk to me. That, that isn't it. We could have a baptism service. That isn't it. You could join the church. That isn't it. Here's all it is. You, in your heart, say, yes, thank you. You trust it. That's all. That's all. Everything else is just dressing. You just trust it. So if you're here today and this is the first time this has been clear to you and you're going, uh-huh, I better have that, then have it. In fact, I think if you're saying to yourself, yeah, I better have that, you probably already do. Because you're trusting it and not something else. That's all. That's all. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider one another to stir up love and good deeds. Father, we give you thanks for this great salvation that you've given to us in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would live in it, that we would enjoy it at all times, that we would live lives in your presence, holding to the hope of our calling. And that we would be real encouragement to one another in these things. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.